Good morning. This is Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, with God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we have we, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being brought together into a dwelling place for the God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And welcome, Pastor Brian, Dr. Brian. So Father, it is so good to be in your presence. Thank you, Lord God. The, the amazing thing to me about the body of Christ is um, I've never seen these people before. And 
many of them in this room uh, are professing followers of Jesus Christ, bought by the blood of your son Jesus, Lord God, which, which makes us more than friends. We're family. And so it's good to be here with family, Lord God. Pray that you'd give me great grace both in what I say and in how I say it, um, that your gospel would be made clear, and that, Lord God, we would be drawn because of what you have accomplished for us vertically on the cross and reconciling us to a holy God, that we would be drawn, compelled to live out that unity horizontally with other people who who are ethnically different than us. Not in some political, ideological way, but because this is the biblical vision you have for us, for this church. It's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. Well, what a joy and delight it is to be here with you. I'm looking at the, uh, at the clock. Uh, Evan, just tell me what time I need to be done. Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> I'm a black preacher. I need some instructions. <laughs> so it reminds me of the time, true story, I was preaching at a um, Presbyterian church uh, back east. And uh, I always just want to be sensitive, you know, as a guest. And I said to the pastor, you know, I think it was like their 11 o'clock service or something. I said, well, how long do I have? He said, oh, dear brother, we are a spirit-filled, spirit-led church. Time means nothing here. You let the Lord use you. But the people leave at 12. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I will definitely, I will definitely be, be sensitive to that. Look, we're going to hang out in Ephesians 2. I'm just going to talk about the gospel and we are going to talk about race. But I just, I just want you to hear my heart on this. Um, you're not, this ain't angry black man time. All right. Uh, so I want you to exhale. I want you to relax. Uh, I moved. I just moved from San Jose, California. We sold our house in San Jose, California, bought a house in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am mad. I ain't mad at nobody, okay? Um, and, um, you know, one of our staff guys, a white gentleman, said to me, Brian, if you could live at any time in world history, when would it be? I said, as a black man? That's a dumb question. Now, like 1753 wasn't a good year for me. 1853 wasn't good. 1953 wasn't good. So I, I, know, I know it's not perfect, but boy, am I incredibly thankful that I'm born when I'm born, all right? So um, I'm full of hope. Relax. You ain't going to get a biblical beat down. Uh, but I just, I do want to, I do want to share some things. Again, thanks to Evan. And uh, we are just getting to know each other a little bit. Met him last year at a retreat and we're, uh, we're building a wonderful friendship. I've been here since Tuesday. I spoke to about 400 church planters who gathered here in San Diego. And I was like, I'm going to be in San Diego. I'm bringing my golf clubs. And poof, this was not the week to golf. Um, <laughs> But I did get some salt and straw, so it, uh, I have been able to, to redeem that time uh, somewhat. Uh, there, there's a verse in the Bible that I just think every uh, adult child should be able to just quote, like quote to their, to their parents, just like that. Um, and whenever I'm with my dad, I always, without fail, quote to him Proverbs 13.22. And Proverbs 13.22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Seriously, every time I'm with my dad, 
Good man leaves inheritance to his children's children. I'll go, Dad, are you a good man? Like, I just, I need to, need to know that. Well, uh, not too long ago, we're, we're sitting there. He lives on the north side of Atlanta, a little, little bit of a suburb there. And we're sitting there having lunch at the uh, Cheesecake Factory. And since a little bit of judgment uh, when I said that. Um, and I quote to him, Proverbs 13:22, tongue in cheek, are you a good man, Dad? He goes, funny you should mention that. I've just made some changes to my will. Well, bro, now you got my attention. Tell me about the changes. And uh, he goes, it's interesting. Here we are in the state of Georgia. And he says, you know, I sit down with my lawyer and, and uh, my lawyer's like, Dr. Lewis, I'm so excited to be able to walk through this amendment process to your will. But uh, you, you need to know something is pretty critical. Um, Georgia state law uh, stipulates some things. I see you've got four kids. Three of them are biological. One of them's adopted. Georgia state law uh, stipulates that at any given moment, you can amend even out of your will, your biological kid. Uh, but Georgia state law also stipulates that at no given moment can you ever amend out of your will your adopted child. That child is completely secure. So I just want to be clear on that. And so when we come to the book of Ephesians, it's pretty interesting. In chapter 1, Paul says, here's what happened to us, those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus Christ, that at the moment of salvation, when you were justified, declared righteous, Paul says you were adopted into the family of God. Now, forgive me. But so many times, because of my own ignorance, and that's the word I'll use for myself, there, there's this thing in me that just kind of always heard adoption as kind of second-class citizenship. But Paul wants us to understand that adoption is not second-class citizenship. It's first-rate security. That, that, that we, as God's adopted kids, can never be edited out of God's, God's will. In fact, that's why he says in Ephesians chapter 1, that not only were we adopted, but right on the heels of saying, he says, we were sealed with the precious Holy Spirit. I don't know where you are in this room on the spiritual continuum. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe you grew up in the church. Others of you, maybe this is your first time in church. You wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. Here's why Christianity is compelling to me. That, that here I am. I'm adopted into the family of God. Not, not because of anything that I've done. Not because of my performance. But because of what Christ did for me on the cross that's why he could say it is finished for followers of Jesus Christ. We are not working for approval, but from approval. Been adopted. Sealed. And then we come to chapter 2 and Paul is still in the opening 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. He's just kind of extrapolating on this whole concept of how we got adopted into the family of God. And uh, if there's one verse that kind of, in, if there's one word that kind of encompasses all of Ephesians 2, it's the, the idea of the gospel. It's what we would call in Greek the euangelion, the good news. But it's interesting, the first three verses Paul talks about the bad news of our sin. It's like Paul is saying, before I can really get you to appreciate the good news of the gospel, I, I got to give you the bad news of sin. And, and you need to see what God saved you from. It's sort of like um, 
Man, I, I remember um, I first met my wife in church. Actually, we were, we were in L.A. I was a, a seminary student there, and it was a huge church, man. And uh, I, I just remember seeing her for the first time, man. It was one of those old school churches where the pastor sat uh, on the stage and looking down, and, and I saw her. It's like the, the lights just came on her, and um, man, I was blown away. She messed up my worship that Sunday, man. And, and I discovered she had just gotten saved and I felt called of Jesus to be a part of her spiritual formation <laughs> process. Let me show you what this thing's about, sweetheart. Um, and so fell in love with her and, you know, then, then just, you know, said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to marry this girl. But the problem was I'm a seminary student, which means I'm po. Not poor. I couldn't afford the other O and the R. I was, I was poor. And uh, so I was looking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose you on this. I know. I know. Um, but I was looking for a jeweler that would give me a layaway plan. I know I've lost you. You can Google it. Um, and so what I discovered when I go to all these jewelers, they would never just take the diamonds and just plop them on the counter. What they would all do is they would put out a black piece of velvet cloth and then they'd put the diamonds on top of the black piece of velvet cloth. And you know why they did that. The contrast made those diamonds pop all the more. When we come to Ephesians 2, Paul is giving us the diamond of the gospel. But what he's got to do to make the gospel pop all the way more is he begins in verses 1 through 3 by rolling out the black velvet cloth of our sin. Parenthesis. That's why I never get so grown and sophisticated in your faith that you fail to glance at the rearview mirror of what God saved you from. I call it a rearview mirror, not a, not a windshield. There's a reason why your rearview mirror is smaller than your windshield. It's, it's not meant to be stared at. It's meant to be glanced at. It gives you perspective. Oh, if you could just look at what God saved you from, it'll deepen your experience in praise and worship of him. So here's Paul. Talks about what God saved us from. He says, I want you to know you were by nature children of wrath. If I was preaching this text back in the 90s, I, I, I would entitle this message, Naughty by Nature. Y'all got that? Man, this 90s hip hop group. Good job, Evan. You are discipling this church well. Now, some of you are sitting here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. You go, wait a minute. I was, I'm an object of God's wrath? I, I thought God loved me. How, how can God love me and be angry with me at the same time? And I would respond by saying, you must not have kids. Because can nobody tick you off like those little tax write-off? In fact, any psychologist would tell you that anger is actually an indicator light of what you care about the most. The opposite of anger is actually indifference. The fact that God gets ticked off at my sin tells me he cares. Tells me he loves me. That's why Romans chapter 1, Paul says in Romans 1, the worst thing God could ever do to you is just turn you over to a reprobate mind. The worst thing God could ever do to you is to say, go ahead, do you. It's like when I used to live in New York City. 
You know, my, my, my six-year-old Jaden did not like holding onto my hand. And so here we are just walking across busy intersections and he's jerking and jerking. The worst thing I could ever do to, to Jaden is not tighten my grip. The worst thing I could do to him is, you know what? Go ahead. Do you, bro. You're six years old. Figure this thing out. Have, have fun crossing Broadway. That's why Hebrews would say, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's his love. Then verse 4, right on the heels of talking about all that God has saved us from, he says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. I love it. He doesn't just say God has mercy. He says that God is rich in mercy. In other words, Paul is helping us to understand that God has more mercy than we have mess. Well, if I was in a chocolate church, that's some shouting stuff right there. <laughs> I know this is a different context. Y'all don't talk to the preacher. I, I, get, I get that. But I'm just telling you, you're begging for a long sermon because I don't know if you're getting it. Right? <laughs> if you want me to hurry up, you better say something. Preach it. Amen. When you're ready for me to end, say land the plane and we'll land the plane. I, we got a bunch of them flying over here. This is an interesting venue to preach in. God has more mercy than we have mess. Amen. And then he says, for by grace, you have been saved. He says that twice. I look, one pastor friend of mine says, one pastor friend of mine says, grace means you didn't eat your dinner, but you still get dessert like that. It's God giving to you what you do not deserve. And C.S. Lewis, yes, you are right when C.S. Lewis says that the distinction of Christianity from all other faith traditions and religions is grace. My pastor, Bishop Kenneth Ulmer, just retired from his church, Faithful Central, 13,000 person church, uh, bought the forum. When he sold the forum, um, the last artist uh, to do a concert in the forum while my pastor in the church owned it was Prince. Prince, Prince said, I, I never do business with people I don't know. So he invites my pastor to do dinner at his home in the Hollywood Hills. So I called my pastor like the next day, like, bro, you gotta tell me. You and Prince did dinner together. Tell me about that. Like, what'd y'all talk about? He goes, you won't believe this. We talked the whole time about the Lord. He says, Prince is a Jehovah's Witness. I said, man, get out of here. He says, next thing you're going to tell me is Prince is knocking on folks' doors in the Hollywood Hills at ungodly hours at 6 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> talking about, uh -huh. He goes, he is. And my pastor said to Prince, why are you doing this? And Prince says, it's crazy. I've put out all this music all these years and something is missing. I'm trying to make it into heaven. He says, I want to get into the 144,000. 
My pastor goes, well, at what point do you know you've done enough? It's the problem with works. You never get to a point where you go, I'm good. And that's where Christianity comes along and says, it's by grace that you have been saved. The seminary I went to, I told you I was, I was Poe, and man, when I was in, when I was in Bible college, I, um, I was the laziest student you ever want to meet. Like, what, just tell me the bare minimum, and I'll do it. And that's why when I graduated from Bible college, I, I, didn't, I didn't graduate at summa cum laude or magna cum laude. I, I just graduated, thank you, laude. <laughs> thank you. And um, so now it's time for me to go to grad school. And uh, my dad says to me, college was a partnership between me, you, and Jesus. Grad school is you and Jesus. I'm praying for you. So uh, I come out, and I'm broke. And I don't want to take out a whole bunch of loans. But just so happened the seminary I was at, they, um, I got awarded what's called the SIRS scholarship, the scholarship for under-resourced and represented students. In other words, they gave me a scholarship because I'm black. And the reason why they did that is because they acknowledged a part of their past, there was a time when blacks could not enter into their school. So it's their, it's their steps of repentance. Now here's what I'm telling you. I hate telling this story because there's no boasting in it. The boasting is, man, I crushed it in college, 4.0, summa cum laude. And then I got the scholarship in grad school and the scholarship says, man, if you maintain this GPA, we'll pay for everything. And man, that's what I did. I just earned merit-based scholarships. That's where the boasting is. And some of you right now, you're a little uneasy and a little uncomfortable because I got a scholarship for something I had no control over. I, 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 I didn't deserve it. And if you're a little uneasy, then all of us should be uneasy because in the kingdom of heaven, there are no merit-based scholarships. You didn't perform your way in. And there's not enough performance to keep your way in. Saved by grace, sustained by grace. And some of you really need to hear that right now because grace isn't just for justification it's for sanctification in other words grace isn't just the diving board it's the swimming pool every friday night it's um game night at our house um, we, we love games in the loritz household i got three boys and man nothing brings me greater joy than to crush my family monopoly <laughs> just love crushing them in monopoly like it's just a beautiful sight at the end of monopoly i got all the houses i got all the hotels i got cash like stacks of cash and they have nothing <laughs> i say to my kids this is an accurate illustration of what's really true of you we ain't got money i got it you don't have it But you know what I never do after a game of Monopoly? I never take the money, put it in a bag, and go to Bank of America to make a deposit. 
And you know why I don't do that. Because while monopoly money has value in the realm of monopoly, it has no value in the realm of this world. That's your works. That's what you drive, that's where you live, that's, that's the letters behind your name, that's how much money you make. It's monopoly money. It carries no value in the kingdom of God. And that's your ethnicity. For some of you, your ethnicity might carry some value in the kingdom of America. but it carries no value in the kingdom of God. Yes, it's a part of what it means to be made in the Imago Day. Praise God, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, and that is not just my spirit, that's also my, my skin. And when I get my new glorified body, which in heaven we will have new glorified bodies, I'm hoping mine has a much faster metabolism, <laughs> but it will also come with black skin. I'm redemptively black. And because of that, there's certain things I don't do. I don't hike. <laughs> you know black folk don't do that. You may go up that mountain for what? Like that's fun to you? I know, I know, Brian, you're stereotyping. Hey. Watch the Discovery Channel for yourself. You won't find Keisha or Shaquita or none of them. Even some of the worship songs we sing, you know black people didn't write it. Remember that song back in the day, Oceans? I guarantee you a black person did not write Oceans. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting off course here. We're different! We're different. Saved by grace through faith. Watch this. And John in Revelation 5 says, when I looked up into heaven, I saw people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. How do you know on site differences in people groups unless you see differences in color? So don't go colorblind on me. But the centerpiece of heaven is not diversity, it's the lamb. Christ is the focal point. Now what's interesting, Amen, verses 1 through 10. Yes, saved by grace through faith. Yes, God's rich in mercy. Yes, vertical reconciliation through Christ. Amen. But keep reading. Look at verse 11. Right on the heels of talking about being vertically reconciled to God through Christ. What does he say, verse 11? Therefore. Stop. Don't need to spend a day in the seminary to figure this out. Therefore, simply means what I'm about to say is connected to what I just said. You get it? Therefore, watch it now, you Gentiles in the flesh. Underline that phrase, in the flesh. In the flesh means he is talking about racially or ethnically different people. What is Paul doing? Blows my mind. He's connecting race to the gospel. 
So this ain't an MSNBC thing. This ain't Fox News. This ain't Newsmax. This ain't CNN. This ain't liberal or progressive. It ain't conservative. This is Bible. Paul says that your vertical reconciliation to God through Christ should have horizontal implications and should push you to, to do life with people who don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like you. So now he tethers the vertical with the horizontal. By the way, this is all throughout the Bible. If we read the Ten Commandments, First half of the Ten Commandments is vertical, our relationship with God, but he's not done. The second half are horizontal. It's how we relate to people. Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment? Hear it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. Vertical. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Horizontal. John says it this way. How can I claim to love God? Vertical. Whom I don't see, but hate. Hate my brother whom I do see. Horizontal. That's why Jesus would say Matthew chapter uh, 18, an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron. If you say you've been reconciled to God, but you're holding a grudge towards someone who's been made in his image, it's out of step with the gospel. Just, just like Luke chapter 12, Matthew chapter 25, a greedy Christian is an oxymoron. If you say, I've been reconciled to God, but you do nothing for the poor who've been made in his image, it's an oxymoron. Or it's Galatians chapter 2 when Paul confronts Peter and he says, of his racism, your conduct is out of step with the gospel. A racist Christian or a racially indifferent Christian is an oxymoron. And so some of you in this room... For you, all Christianity is, is my vertical relationship with God. Let me, let me have my cup of coffee. Let me do my amazing quiet time, my Bethmore Bible study with my Bethmore bobblehead doll. <laughs> Others of you, you've got the exact problem, exact opposite problem. You're, you're, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, love your neighbor, but it's not anchored to truth. So is Christianity vertical or horizontal? Jesus would say yes. It's both. So here's Paul. If you study Paul, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I've got a few thoughts as we round third and head for home. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes. Watch it now. Not to the Jew only, but to the Jew first. And also the Greek. This now is Paul's missiological methodology for how he plants churches. You just read Paul in Acts 16, Acts 17, Acts 18, Acts 19. Whenever Paul walks into a town to plant a church, Paul always asks two questions. Number one, where's the synagogue? I want to preach Christ to the Jews. He goes, preaches Christ to the Jews. Some Jews get saved, but he's not done because Paul has a gospel greed. He wants to reach the whole city for Christ. He doesn't want to just reach people who looks like, who looks like him. He says, now where do the Gentiles hang out? Acts 17, they point it to Mars Hill. Uh, Acts 19, they point to the Hall of Tyranes. Acts 18, Luke says he was reasoning daily with Jews and Greeks trying to persuade them. And so he goes up to uh, Mars Hill. He goes up to the Hall of Tyranes. He's reasoning with them uh, there in the Agora, the marketplace in Corinth. 
Corinth. And now some Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. So now he's got a major problem. I got two groups of people. uh, They've just come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they hate each other. What do I do? Thank God he didn't do the typical American thing. Let's just start a church on the north side of town for the Gentiles, a church on the south side of town for the Jews. It's just easier that way. No, no, no. Paul says, I'm starting one church. And I want you to live out horizontally what God in Christ has already accomplished for you vertically. Reconciliation. That's right. The normal church in the first century world was multi-ethnic. That's the norm. It's the norm. The multi-ethnic church is not a new thing. We've just veered so far off course in America that it now looks like a new thing. So Paul says, I'm starting one church, Jew and Gentile. Why, Paul, are you doing this? Because Paul says in our text that Christ in his body has demolished the dividing wall of hostility. That phrase, the dividing wall, uh, it, it's a reference to the, to the Jewish court system there at the temple. The temple had four courts. The outermost court was the court of the Gentiles. By the way, in Matthew chapter 21, when Jesus walks in and cleanses the temple and he gets really angry, uh, wh- wh- why is he really angry? Yes, he is responding to the commercialization of the temple uh, where these Jewish leaders were selling their, their wares. But he's also, I believe, reacting to a subtle form of racism. Where are they selling their wares? in the only place in the temple where Gentiles could worship, the court of Gentiles. It's as if the Jewish leader says, it doesn't matter. They shouldn't be here in the first place. And unless you think I'm making a reach, notice what Jesus says as he's cleansing the temple. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus gets angry at racism and segregation in his church. Court of Gentiles, next is the court of the women, next is the court of, um, of, um, of the Israelites, and then the court of the priests. Now in the late 1800s, they actually found the wall that divided the court of Gentiles from the rest of the, of the temple, and written on it were words to the effect uh, that said, proceed no further upon fear of death. Do you know why, by the way, why Paul gets thrown in jail for the last time? Because he's falsely uh, accused of taking his dear friend Trophimus, a Gentile, into the forbidden parts of the temple. Now notice what Paul says. Christ in his death has demolished the dividing wall of hostility. It's like the cross is a sledgehammer knocking that bad boy down. And now the imagery is poignant. Now Jews and Gentiles can rush in together and worship, one and worship with one another to the holy God. But sadly, we here in America, by and large, we get an A plus for resurrecting what Christ has sought to tear down. In the late 1700s, St. George's Methodist Church there in Philadelphia 
By the way, you do know back then churches in America were multi-ethnic, but blacks had to sit up in the balcony or in the back. St. George's, late 1700s, right there in Philadelphia, a black man has the audacity to, to pray in the whites-only section of the church. Just think about that. There's a whites-only section in the church. Black men has the audacity to pray. They don't even wait for him to finish praying. They pick him up off his knees and throw him out in the street. Two weeks later, all the blacks leave. They buy a little blacksmith shop. And that is the beginning of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first black denomination. And that would begin kind of this snowball effect. Here's what I want you to know. This is the hardest thing I'll say to you. No guilt, no condemnation. You know why the black church in America exists? The black church in America only exists because the white church failed to be the church. I believe we have the opportunity to rewrite history. Amen. Let's go home on this. Why, Paul, do you labor so hard? I mean, the easy thing, Paul, is you just come in town, go to the synagogue, just share Christ with the, with the Jews, lead them to faith. It's, it's not as messy. Multi-ethnic church is messy. Have you, ever, have you ever read like 1 Corinthians or other, other sections? Why is Paul talking about food? I'm sure Paul is like, shoot me now. Because it's a multi-ethnic church. And when the Gentile family invites the Jewish family over to their house for dinner after service and there's a slab of ribs, it's messy. Paul says, I do all this because Christ wants to present one new man. Paul is writing in Greek, the Greek word for new, there's several Greek words. One is neos, N-E-O-S. Neos is, is new as it relates to time. It's the latest MacBook Pro, it's the 2023 Chevy Tahoe, it's the latest jet to come off the assembly line. Paul doesn't use neos, he uses kainos. K-A-I-N as in Nancy, O-S. Kainos doesn't speak of something new as it relates to time, but something new as it relates to kind. It's the idea of invention. So while Neos is the latest MacBook Pro, Kainos is the first computer ever. While Neos is 2023 Chevrolet Tahoe, Kainos is um, Henry Ford in his Model T. While Neos is the latest jet to come off the assembly line, Kainos is the Wright Brothers. Can you imagine going to Kitty Hawk Beach in the early 1900s and watching the Wright Brothers up in the air and then coming back home and your roommate was like, tell me about it. You're like, mind blown, never seen anything like that, jaw on the ground. I have no category to put that in. Watch it now. That's the word Paul uses for the coming together of Jew and Gentile in the local church. Mind blown! Do you know the first three members of the church at Philippi? 
an entrepreneur woman named Lydia crushing it in the marketplace, a slave girl, and a blue-collar jailer and his family. Those are the first members. You're going to be talking some about um, Colossians. They meet in a guy's house named Philemon, <laughs> wealthy. And so when you, when you walked into the church at Ephesus and you saw Jew and Gentile, the only place in the then known world where Jew and Gentile came together, and you saw women being honored and treated as equals with men, and you saw rich and poor in a class society, you came home from church and your roommate was like, tell me about it, and you're mind blown. I have no category for that. Here's my concern for the church of Jesus Christ. We ain't blowing people's minds. Of course that's the Republican church. Of course that's the Democratic church. Of course that's the rich church. Of course that's the poor church. Of course that's the black church. Of course that's the white church. That doesn't blow anybody's minds. But boy, you put Giants fans and Dodgers fans in the same church. <laughs> So I wanted this type, type of church, and I just, I just prayed 2001, 2002, Lord, send me to the toughest place to do a multi-ethnic church. And so, long story short, we go to Memphis, Tennessee. It's a city that assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. That's the city that has a park in honor to the founder of the KKK. That's the city that to this day has a country club that black people can't join. And we said, we're coming, we're storming the gates of hell. Gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic church. That's what we want. And before I know it, man, thousands of people are coming, and it's 65% white, 35% black man. And one Sunday I'm preaching, and there's this elderly, elderly black woman there, and she's just kind of looking around. And I get finished preaching. She comes up to me. She's dressed to the nines. That's how southern black people do. We don't, we don't wear Crocs. <laughs> Old school Southern people, we, we come suited and booted. So she comes to me, she's crying, she's in her 80s. She says, young man, I'm, I'm from this city. I used to serve as a domestic, I was the help in white people's homes, I watched their kids, I cleaned up. I was here when they killed Dr. King, she says, I remember the curfews. And in the early 70s, I started to pray a simple prayer. God, send us a church where people can come together. She said, you are the answer to these prayers. Do I think every church should be multi-ethnic? I don't. I do think every church should look like its mission field. And if people are still coming to church primarily out of relationships, then sanctuaries reflect dinner tables. What does your dinner table look like? I don't believe 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour. I actually think it's 6 p.m. on weekday nights that's the most segregated hour.
I love mayonnaise. Love it. I think that's my problem. It's got to be in heaven, man. You know, I've thought a lot about mayonnaise. It's got stuff in it that just shouldn't be together. Mayonnaise got stuff in it that just doesn't get along. Oil and water. How do you get oil and water to dwell in close community with one another? Well, you chemistry people understand this. Mayonnaise has something called an emulsifier. In mayonnaise, it's, it's called eggs. An emulsifier just brings stuff together. It's like, it's like the egg says, come here oil, hang out with me. Come here water, hang out with me. Make me the focal point. And at some point, oil and water meet each other. They're doing life together. You know, Jesus is our emulsifier. I don't want you leaving here going, I, I, gotta, I gotta make this kind of friend, I gotta do it. Yeah, there's some intentional things you should do, but the greatest thing you should do is just lift Jesus up and keep him high. Because Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw. Not most people, all people. Be a Jesus first gospel above all community. And when you add intentionality to that, when you catch horizontal reconciliation, that vision for it, now we become a place where people from all different parts of San Diego are coming together loving one another. Because Christ is the focal point. God, we thank you. Last couple years, Lord God, has just done a number on your church, Father. Race stuff, political stuff. And then the pandemic, Lord God, we get ostracized from each other. Satan has had a field day, Lord God, but we say not any longer. God, we want to live this thing out. So God, would you give us a greater vision? Christ, would you be lifted high? I pray that when people come to this church for the first time, their minds are blown. Not over the quality of the musicianship and the singing, although it's really good. Not over the quality of the sermons and the preaching. What blows their mind is a community. It's a fellowship of difference. They're just loving each other. Because by this, Jesus said, well, all people know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Amen.